Uh, we pick up the story. Uh, the nation of Israel, they, they left Egypt 40 years before this. And they left under really amazing circumstances. God brought them out uh, under slavery. They've been there for 400 years. And uh, the Lord caused these plagues to happen. And finally, Pharaoh's like, just get out of here. Uh, go and go to your own land and worship your own God. And so God brings them out in this extraordinary series of events. And uh, they then cross through the Red Sea. God parts the waters of the sea. They walk through on dry land. And uh, then God gives them his word. They, they, they meet God at Mount Sinai and God gives Moses his word. And it's this moment of like, will they follow God or will they not? And it turns out in that moment, they reject God. They actually worship an idol. And, uh, and then they, they, spend the next, they spend the next 40 years wandering around in the desert. 40 years waiting for the promise to be brought about, the promise to be fulfilled. And as they wandered around the desert until this adult generation who left Egypt passed away, they now, this generation has now experienced this incredible miracle. They were on the other side of the Jordan River, and remember it was at flood stage, and it was this terrifying moment, and God says, as soon as the priest's toe touches the water, I'm going to stop it. And sure enough, he has them stand far off so they can all see it. And the priests go down, they put their toes in the water, and the river stops up, and the whole nation walks through on dry land. So they've been experiencing this incredible, miraculous movement of God as he moves them across into the promised land. And in chapter 1 of Joshua, God said to Joshua three times, he said, be strong and courageous. Because I'm going to be with you. In chapter 2, the spies heard from Rahab, who lives in Canaan, that the entire land of Canaan, all the people, she said their hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of Israel and what God is doing to bring them into the land. And so God's done this incredible, incredible moving of his people across the river into the land that he promised to Abraham that he would give them. Are you, this is where we're at. And you get to today's passage, and in verse 1 it says, Now when the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they crossed over, here it is again, their hearts melted in fear, and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. So that's twice now it's said, everyone in the land, their hearts are melting in fear and they've lost all courage. I mean, this is every great action war movie ever made. The hero prepares for battle. And the villain knows he's outmatched and begins to be afraid to fear the overwhelming strength and courage of the hero. It's Batman getting himself ready to take down Bane. It's the Avengers getting together and getting all their stuff ready to go to take down Thanos. It's Macaulay Culkin laying out the micro-machines and the broken glass under the window when the wet bandits come to rob his house. That's where we're at in the story. Not just of Joshua, but that's where we're at in the story of Israel. The entire Bible has led to this moment almost since Abraham was promised a land a few hundred years before. And so here is the moment. And so you expect verse 2 to say, So early the next morning, Joshua led the fighting men of Israel straight up to the walls of Jericho and laid siege to the city. But instead what you get is verse 2. It says, verse 1, their hearts are melting in fear and they have no more courage. Verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. And in the gestures of Stephen Colbert, 
What? I'm sorry, what? The whole land is melting in fear because of you. And God says, now you go and circumcise yourselves. I don't think Netflix is going to option this story. And yet here it is in all its strangeness. But if you remember, the strength and the courage that the Bible talks about is not the stuff of superheroes. That's not the strength and courage that the Bible leads us to. The strength and courage that the Bible leads us to is the stuff of everyday faithfulness. And so if you thought you couldn't live a life, live the life of a hero, if you, if you're, if you think that's not me, I'm not a hero, you couldn't possibly live a life that's marked by strength and courage, well, think again. Because the book of Joshua says you can. True strength and courage is available to everyone, no matter your stature, no matter your resources, no matter your internal resolve or your willpower. True strength and courage is available to every single person. And it comes from everyday faithfulness. It doesn't come in the extraordinary moments. It comes from everyday faithfulness. And so if you want to be able to face the big moments, the challenging moments, if you want to be ready when the diagnosis comes, if you want to be ready when the relationship is on the rocks, if you want to be ready when the work dries up, and if you want to remain faithful in those situations, if you want to be strong in those moments, if you want to be courageous in that time, then what this passage is going to show us is we start today. You start today. You don't wait till the moment to become strong and courageous. You start today. And what happens in Joshua chapter 5 on the surface, it really does seem like a strange footnote in the entire book. But it's actually critical. It's the critical turning point for how they will have the strength and courage to conquer the land. This is the turning point. The courage to face everything that's going to come in the rest of the book. And so without this pause in the action, they don't have the strength and courage to take down Jericho, to defeat Ai. They don't have the strength to win in battle after battle. And so there's two primary things we're going to see today. One is that courage comes from God's reputation. And secondly, strength comes from everyday faithfulness. So courage comes from God's reputation and strength comes from everyday faithfulness. And if we can set ourselves up for faithfulness today, then in the moments where we need courage, and the moments when you need strength, you'll have it. It'll be there. So let's look at this. First, courage comes from God's reputation. You see this in verse 1, and I've already mentioned that this is the second time the text says that people's hearts are melting in fear. And it says they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. And I, I hope you're picking up the contrast that the writer is attempting to draw out here. Four times in chapter 1, it actually says to Joshua, be strong and courageous, because the nation says it back to him the fourth time. And in chapter 2 and chapter 5, it says Joshua's enemies' hearts are melting in fear. And that they don't have courage. You see the contrast there? But why is that there? I mean, think about it. The cities of Jericho and Ai and Jerusalem and Hebron, all of them, they all have the upper hand. All of those cities in Canaan, they all have the upper hand. They all have great defenses. And on top of that, there's no surprise attack here. They've known for 40 years that they're coming. They've had time to prepare. They know Israel is coming so they can get ready. They should be filled with strength. They should be filled with courage, and yet it says their hearts are melting in fear and they no longer have the courage to face the Israelites. Why is that? 
We'll look again at verse 1. Now when the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. And so the Amorites and the Canaanites and their cities of Jericho and Ai and Jerusalem and Hebron and all the other cities because they, they heard about what the Lord did. They're melting in fear because they heard about what the Lord did. In other words, it's the Lord's reputation that's going before Israel into the land, into these upcoming battles. God's reputation rings out across the land. And here's what that's telling us. The courage doesn't come from our own merit. It doesn't come from our own strength. It doesn't come from our own internal resolve. It doesn't come from the things that we have done. Because what are they afraid? It doesn't say they're afraid of what Israel did. Oh, didn't they camp really well? Oh, we're shut, you know, we're in fear. But they're afraid because of what the Lord had done. The Lord had dried up the river. And so if you're looking for courage based on your own merits, based on your own achievements, eventually it's going to fall short. When I was in college, um, I wasn't allowed to have a, a car on campus, and I studied in the, the downtown area of Chicago, and there wasn't enough room there for everyone to have a car. And so some weekends I would come out, and my dad and I had this little deal because I could get to the campus where he taught community college pretty easily. And so he would uh, leave my car in the parking lot on a Friday, and I would get there off the train, and I'd take the car, and I'd have it for the weekend. And then on Sunday, I would come back, and I would leave the car there on campus, and then he would pick it up on Monday. It was a good little deal that we had, so I sort of kind of had a car when I was at school. And I remember one Sunday night, it was uh, sort of later in the evening, and the sun had gone down, and the campus is closed. It's a community college, so nobody lived there, and so they closed the campus on the weekends when there's nothing going on. Uh, but, you know, I had this deal with my dad, and so I drove my car onto the campus, and I parked it over near where my dad's office was, and then I was waiting for someone to come and pick me up to take me to the train station. And sure enough, uh, you know how this goes. The campus security, they always kind of think they're, you know, sorry, Jose. I know you did that for a while. But they kind of think, you know, they're a bigger deal than they are. And so here I am, the only car on the entire campus in the parking lot. And up comes as fast as he can the campus security police with its yellow lights, not the red and blue, because they're not allowed those. And he comes flying up behind me as if I'm trying to flee, even though I'm in a parking lot up against a wall. And he comes up to the car ready to go, and he knocks on the window, and he says, hey, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, I'm just uh, leaving the car here for my dad, and someone's going to take me to the train station. He goes, oh, you're leaving it for your dad, huh? And I said, yeah. And he said, who's your dad? And my dad, uh, he was a professor of criminal justice, so he taught all of these people who wanted to be police officers, including this guy. And so I said, oh, my dad is, is Neil Lippold. And his, he lost all color in his face. And he said, have a great night, as he backs away <laughs> to his car, turns off the lights, and drives away. Now, for all accounts, the campus police is right. I shouldn't have been there. The campus is closed. I had no merits to be there. I had no reason. I had no right to be there. 
But once he learned who my father is, his heart melted in fear and he lost all courage. That's the courage of Israel as they enter the promised land. That's the courage of the Christian. Do you know who my father is? Do you know who my dad is? And once again, we come across this theme of remembering what God has already done. This is the reason that all Christians should be historians. Remembering the things God has already done. The ways that he's already come through for you. The ways that he's provided for you. The ways that he's protected you. The ways that he has comforted you. This is why Christians should be historians. And so what is it that you're facing? Where do you feel afraid in this moment? Where do you feel anxious? Where do you lack courage in this moment? Is it at work? Is it in a relationship? Is there something you know that God has called you to, but you just won't take that step because of fear? Be a historian. But what is God's reputation so far? What have you already seen him do in your life? What have you already heard about him doing in the lives of others? What is his reputation? Because if you can focus on that, then you'll be filled with courage. Or at least you'll get just enough courage to take the next step. And so that's point one. Courage comes from God's reputation of what he's already done. Courage comes when you become a historian. Remembering the things he's done. Now, point two, strength comes from everyday faithfulness. And uh, point two is actually three points. You see, I tricked you. You thought, hey, only two point sermon today. This would be a quick one. I'm ready for that lunch. Uh, not so fast. Not so fast. Uh, here they are. Three, the three points of point two are this. Strength comes from everyday faithfulness. Strength comes from everyday weakness, and strength comes from everyday provision. Let's look at these first. Strength comes from everyday faithfulness. Now, I want to come back to this idea that verse 2 is a really very sharp uh, uh, divergence from verse 1. Remember the Canaanite, the Amorites, king, they're melting in fear. They've lost their courage. And to bring as much emphasis to the contrast here and the sharp left turn that it seems that they're making, the author starts verse 2 with this little phrase. He says, at that time. So he's not talking about a time later. He's not talking about a time after they conquered the land, then they did this. He's saying, at that time, immediately after they crossed the Jordan and everyone is melting in fear and lost their courage, at that time... The Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So what is happening here? Uh, it's actually three rituals that they take part in at that time. So they cross the Jordan. Everyone's afraid. And they actually do three rituals. Uh, they have the circumcision. And a little later on, you read, they celebrate the Passover. And then it makes this reference to them eating this bread. And that's actually a reference to the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So they do three rituals, three things at that time. Now, why are they stopping to do this? They've got their enemies right where they want them. The eye of the tiger is playing in their minds. And yet they stop. 
What is God asking them to stop, to pause? What is, what is he trying to say to them? Here's what God does by asking them to, to pause before they go. God's saying to them, before I do one more extraordinary thing on your behalf, before I do one more extraordinary thing on your behalf, I want you to stop and I want you to do the things of everyday faithfulness. Look at verse 4. It tells us why he did it. And this is, now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. And then in verse 6, we find out the entire nation of adults who left Egypt 40 years before that they died. And the last circumcised generation, they died off in the wilderness. And they, they did that, if you read the Old Testament, you find it because of their lack of faithfulness. They didn't get to go into the promised land because they didn't do the things of everyday faithfulness. Verse 7, so he raised up their sons in their place. And these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. Weird stuff. You could just look at this as a historical note, but it's actually telling us something. What that's saying is the previous generation did not carry on in faithfulness. They didn't carry on in faithfulness to the covenant that God had made with them because the covenant, without getting into too much detail, the sign of that covenant was circumcision. All Jewish males would be circumcised on the eighth day after they're born, but it says in here the previous generation wasn't. And so they weren't faithful to the covenant. They didn't circumcise their children. And this new generation that just crossed the Jordan River, not only did they undergo this ritual of circumcision, but they did two more. They, uh, two more things their parents' generation didn't do. They celebrated the Passover, and they celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the last time it's recorded that Israel did the, celebrated the Passover was 39 years before. Been done for 39 years, and it's probably the same amount of time since they've celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread because the two were usually done together. 39 years. But why does that matter? Why all this stuff about celebrating these rituals before taking the land? I mean, don't they have a lifetime of being able to do these things? Couldn't they just say, do you know what, Lord, why don't we wait until we're on the other side of all these battles and all these things? Why don't we wait until we, you know, built homes and farms and cities? Why don't we just wait? Well, because God gave these three rituals and all the other rituals so that the nation would learn to do the things of everyday faithfulness. These are the things they were to do every time a male child is born. These are the festivals that they were to celebrate year after year after year after year. Regular, repeated, continual, faithful acts in order to show their loving obedience to the God who saved them from slavery. And here's what I think God wants them to understand before they go and fight any battles, before they conquer the land, before they build homes and farms and cities, before they become culture makers and before they become rulers and do any of those things. Here's the principle. If you're not faithful now, you won't be faithful later when it gets hard. 
That's the principle. If you're not faithful today, you won't be faithful tomorrow when you're facing the crisis, when you're facing the challenge. And that was actually the failing of their parents' generation. They weren't faithful in those moments. And now before they go and take the land at the time when their enemies are melting in fear and have lost all courage, God says, pause. He says, slow down. He says, stop. And before you go and do anything extraordinary, learn to be faithful. And that's the principle that emerges here, that if you're not faithful now, you won't be faithful later. Uh, Eugene Peterson, he was a, a pastor and an author. He's the one who did the message translation of the Bible. Um, he wrote a book, I think it was his first book, and the title of the book says it all. Uh, I mean, you should read it, but it's one of those titles that you don't need to read it to get the point. And the point is actually a quote from Nietzsche, which is another story for another day. But the title is this, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. The point of the book, he says, is to help Christians slow down and realize that growth in Christ is not instant. You know, we're used to Amazon Prime. I'm used to it being here today. And I get really frustrated when it's not. And the point of Peterson's book is to say, we really actually need, that's not normal. We really need to slow down and realize that growth in Christ is not instantaneous. It doesn't even come, get this, it doesn't even come in the big moments of life. What you do in those big moments only proves what's already been going on in your life, the growth that you've already had. And so true growth, in other words, true strength comes through a long obedience in the same direction. He says uh, in the epilogue of, of the book, he says this, everything in the gospel is livable, and my pastoral task was to get it lived. It was not enough that I announced the gospel, explain it, or whip up enthusiasm for it. I wanted it lived, lived in details, lived on the streets and on the job, lived in the bedrooms and kitchens, lived through cancer and divorce, lived with children and in marriage. Along the way, I found that this also meant living it myself, which turned out to be a far more formidable assignment. I realized that this was going to take some time. I settled in for the long haul. That's when the phrase from Nietzsche, a long obedience in the same direction, embedded itself in my imagination and eventually became this book. I love what he says there. That to get the gospel lived, lived in detail, in the bedrooms, in the kitchens, and on the job, I realized that it was going to take some time. I settled in for the long haul. That is why you jump from verse 1 to verse 2. That is why as the Canaanite and Amorite kings and all their people are melting in fear, God has them stop, pause, and do the things of everyday faithfulness. So the principle, again, is this. There's actually two. The first one is if you're not faithful now, you won't be faithful later when it's hard. And secondly... Becoming the kind of person who is faithful takes a long obedience in the same direction. You don't just become that person in the moment. 
you have to settle in for the long haul. And so here's the application of this point, the strength to face the battles, the strength to see the walls come down, the armies defeated for Israel, the cities built, the culture established, everything that they would need to become a thriving and flourishing nation. The strength for that is not the stuff of heroes. It's the stuff of everyday faithfulness. Every day they are faithful. Every day that you are faithful, every day that I am faithful, we get a little bit stronger. Strength tomorrow, strength next year, strength in 10 years comes from what you do and how you live today. In other words, if you want to be the kind of person whose faith, whose trust in the gospel can withstand the diagnosis, can withstand the broken relationship, can withstand the challenging career. If you want to be that kind of person. The person who's known in your industry for integrity and service to others, it starts today. I'm, I'm with Eugene Peterson. It's not enough that I announce the gospel, explain it or whip it up, uh, whip up enthusiasm for it. I want it lived. I want it lived in detail. On the streets, on the job, in the kitchens, in the bedrooms. And I think you do too. I think you want it lived in detail in your life in your living room, in your kitchen, in your workplace. But it's going to take some time. It's going to take a lot of prayer in your life, a lot of scripture in your life. It's going to take a long obedience to that scripture and to that prayer. And that's the strength we find in Joshua as they pause to take part in these three rituals of faithfulness. Because, you know, Joshua could have just said no. He could have just charged on, like, no, Lord, this is the time. But he obeys. And so the rituals are being done now so that they'll be done later. Faithfulness now leads to faithfulness later. Secondly, strength actually comes from everyday weakness. And whereas verse 2 didn't seem very obvious at all, verse 8 seems very obvious. It's going to take a little bit of time for them to heal. Verse 8, after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Yeah, that one makes sense, okay? Yep, I got it. They were wounded and then they were healed. And it's in this wounding and healing that we see the very nature of Christian weakness and strength. The wounding and healing of the circumcised men is a hint of a theme that runs from Genesis 3 all the way through to the end of Revelation. Like I said earlier, circumcision is the sign of the covenant that God asked Abraham to undertake and then for all of his descendants after him. So circumcision is the entry point into this covenant. In other words, we'll put it this way, a requirement for entering into the covenant with God to be in relationship with God was to be wounded, was for blood to be shed. This theme starts back in Genesis 3. You know, in Genesis 2, it says Adam and Eve were naked and they had no shame. Then in, in chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God. They turned against him by disobeying him. And when God comes to find them in the garden, it says they realized for the first time that they were naked and they were full of shame. So in chapter 2, they were naked and felt no shame. Chapter 3, they, they are naked and they're full of shame. And yet God does something incredibly gracious in that moment. It says that he made skins from animals to cover their nakedness. In other words, an animal was wounded, an animal was killed. Blood was shed. For Adam and Eve to be in relationship with God and with each other. 
Later on, when God saves Israel from slavery in Egypt, there's another wounding as the Passover lamb is sacrificed and its blood spread on the doorposts. And there again, you have the wounding that brings about the saving. The blood is shed. And there's so many Old Testament stories that follow this theme that to be in relationship with God means someone or something is wounded. Blood is shed. Wounding, the shedding of blood, comes before salvation, before relationship with God can be restored. That is a theme that runs right from Genesis 3 all the way to the end. And look at what it says God did for those who were circumcised at Gilgal, verse 9. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. There's a little play on words here because the name of the place where this happens is Gilgal, which is actually the Hebrew word for roll. The place is called roll, like a stone that rolls. At the start of verse 9, it says, He has rolled away the, the reproach of Egypt. Now, no one knows for sure what this means, but I think it's likely referring to the worship of the golden calf when Moses was on Mount Sinai meeting God face to face. And the nation is down making a golden calf and worshiping. And that golden calf was an Egyptian god. They turned back to the gods of Egypt. In other words, now that they've renewed the covenant with the Lord, now that they've gone through the wound, God has rolled away their former life of rebellious idolatry. The Lord has rolled away the reproach of Egypt. And it's in this interplay between wounding and healing that we see how strength comes through weakness. And of course, for the Christian, this means ever so much more, because what does Isaiah say as he looks forward to the one who was to come to save his people from their sins? What does he say? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and what? By his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah is looking forward to the future Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And when you get to the New Testament, what do you find? You find that Jesus Christ takes the wound. He shed the blood. The book of Hebrews says Jesus also suffered outside the gate that he might sanctify the people through his own blood. The wound comes before the healing. Wounding, then healing. Wounding, then healing. It's all through the, the Bible. The book of 1 John says that Jesus' blood cleanses his people from all sin. And in Christ, you find this theme at its pinnacle. That to be in relationship with God means there has to be a wound. There has to be blood. Only this time, it's not a lamb or a goat. Only this time, it's not merely a flesh wound that only takes a few days to heal. This time, it's God's own son who is fatally wounded who dies on the cross. And, and listen again, listen very closely to what Isaiah says is happening when Jesus Christ is on the cross, when he takes the wound. Listen again. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And what that is saying is that for the one, for the one who looks to Jesus Christ alone for salvation, who trusts in the wounded one, their transgressions are rolled away. Their iniquities 
are rolled away. And instead of receiving a fatal wound, you're healed. Instead of punishment, you receive peace. And it's in that interplay between wounding and healing that we see how weakness leads to everyday strength. Because not only does Jesus take the wound on our behalf, not only does him doing that lead to our salvation, but it leads to our day-to-day strength. Because what the gospel does is it keeps us in, in a constant state of weakness. That if you're regularly thinking about what Jesus Christ did on the cross, you're in a constant state of weakness. God designed the gospel in such a way as to strip us of pride and leave us without any grounds for boasting. You know, pride is the root of all sin. And what is pride but puffing ourselves up? Attempting to show off our strength. But the way God designed the gospel is that to receive it, you have to stoop low. You have to enter through the narrow gate. The narrow gate of humility, admitting your own sinfulness, admitting your own weakness. Listen, nothing suffocates pride more than daily remembering that Jesus Christ was wounded for you. And nothing fills you with strength knowing daily that Jesus Christ was wounded for you. It does both. I mean, that God would do that for you means that he loves you. That God would do that for you means that there isn't anything that he wouldn't do for your good. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 12. He said, but he said to me, the Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so are you at a moment of weakness? Do you feel weak? Do you feel not strong enough for the task ahead, for the trial ahead of you, for the challenges you're facing? good. You could not be in a better place than feeling weak to face the trials and the challenges in front of you. That is exactly the right place to be because what these texts are telling us is that God's strength comes only through weakness. It comes only when you're weak. Only when you come to him in weakness do you receive his strength. And so this is yet another reason God asks Israel to stop before they go, to be wounded, to humble themselves. So that it's only in God's strength that they move forward. So strength comes through everyday faithfulness, comes through everyday weakness. And then the last thing we see is strength comes from everyday provision. Look again at verse 11. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped. The day after they ate this food from the land, there was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year they ate the produce of Canaan. Now, these verses, they actually mark a huge transition for Israel. Because for the last 40 years, they've eaten manna. No one knows what manna is. In fact, they didn't know what it was then. The word manna actually just means, what is it? So they kept saying, hey, did you get some what is it today? Yeah, I got me some what is it. That's what they ate for 40 years. And what we do know is that manna was God's daily provision for food for Israel as they wandered through the desert. Because in the desert, you can't grow food. You can't. You can't plant fields when you're wandering. Fields don't come with you. 
You can't keep livestock in the desert. There's nothing for them to eat or drink. And so what God does in his grace is as they wandered for 40 years, every morning God provides a miraculous daily harvest of manna. Every morning it's there on the ground. And it says that no one had too much and no one had too little. Everyone had exactly what they needed. But did you see that? That now that they've entered into the land, the manna stops. And it says they ate grain that the land of Canaan produced. This is the transition point from miraculous provision to everyday provision. The miraculous provision stops. But does that mean that God's provision has stopped? That he's no longer providing for them? Well, no, of course not. In the desert, Israel had an extraordinary need. And so God meets their extraordinary need in an extraordinary way. But now that they're in the land, and in the land, food grows from the ground. As it doesn't need to come down each morning from heaven, it grows up from the ground in its season. And there's a principle here for us in this transition that they're making. That generally speaking, our daily strength comes from daily provision, everyday provision. You know, we read these stories in the Old Testament, we think that, well, if God doesn't provide the miraculous, you know, the manna from heaven, the sun standing still, the walls falling down, if God doesn't do these extraordinary things for me, he must not be provided. And yet in this moment, in the moment where they are to stop from charging forward, God shows them that he's also their provider through everyday means. They just walk into these fields and there it is. I heard this story once about one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence who was a faithful Christian named Dr. Witherspoon. And the story goes like this. A neighbor came to him. It was back in the 1700s. A neighbor comes to him and he said, Dr. Witherspoon, you must join me in giving thanks to God for his extraordinary providence in saving my life. For as I was driving from Rocky Hill, the horse ran away The buggy was smashed to pieces on the rocks, but I escaped unharmed. Witherspoon replies, Why, can I tell you a far more remarkable providence than that? I have driven that road hundreds of times. My horse never ran away. My buggy was never smashed. I was never hurt. That is as miraculous. I love that. And we have to be careful that we don't think God's strength is only found in the miraculous, only found in the extraordinary, when it's mostly it's found in the everyday normal provision that he gives. It doesn't mean God doesn't do the extraordinary, that he won't do the extraordinary for you at the time when you need it. But let's not forget, you got in your car, you hurled yourself at 60, 70 miles an hour, some of you, for 10, 15, 20 minutes. And you did it unscathed. That's provision. If you're a breakfast eater, you opened your fridge, you opened your cupboards, and you ate breakfast. That's provision. If you paid your rent this month and you're going to pay it next month, that's provision. And so let's never forget that God provides for us through everyday provision, through normal everyday means. And when we can come to grips with that, then we'll never question his strength. We'll never question his ability to provide when we do need a miracle. 
And so as we've been seeing all through Joshua, true strength and courage, it's not the stuff of heroes. It's everyday faithfulness, everyday weakness, everyday provision. And the courage comes not from within, but it comes from God's reputation. It comes from being a historian. I'm going to leave you with a quote from J.C. Ryle. Uh, He was the first bishop of Liverpool, my former home. He said this in a a book called uh, Thoughts for Young Men, which everyone should read, whether you're a young man or not, man or woman, you should read this book. Here's what he said. He said, tomorrow is the devil's day, but today is God's. Satan does not care how spiritual your intentions are or how holy your resolutions, if only they are determined to be done tomorrow. And so the questions about becoming strong and courageous isn't in what you'll do tomorrow. It's not about what you'll do when the time comes to be strong and courageous. That's not how you become strong and courageous. The questions are this. What did God do yesterday? And what will you do today to be faithful, to take one more step in that long obedience in the same direction? And if you can do that today, tomorrow, it's easy. You'll be strong and courageous. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help in this.